Go ahead and grab a seat and turn your Bible to Philippians chapter four is where we're gonna be in God's word this morning. Well, happy Thanksgiving, hope you had a great week. Speaking of which, um, I would uh, uh, say, hey, come back tonight. Uh, we don't often have a Sunday night service, but we do this week, um, our annual Thanksgiving service uh, tonight at six o'clock here in this room. Here's how this, this service goes, it's very simple. Usually we sing two or three songs at the beginning to warm our hearts in worship and prayer uh, and praising the Lord, uh, just lifting up our, our voice and saying, God has been so good to us as we did this morning. And then we simply open up the floor and you get to share. And you get to share, just say, hey, here's how I saw the Lord move and work uh, in my family's life. Here's how uh, the Lord brought us through a season of suffering maybe. Here's how the Lord has dealt bountifully with us in very specific ways. And so um, it's a really sweet time. Often many of our children will share uh, their Thanksgiving as well. And so if, you, if your family didn't uh, you know, go around the table and give thanks, well, come and do it with us tonight. Uh, we would love to have you sing and worship and uh, just praise the Lord with us, giving thanks for all that he has done um, in our lives. Philippians chapter four, we're gonna pick up in verse four. We're gonna read through verse 13. Hear God's word. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone for the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and facing hunger, facing abundance and facing need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This ends the reading of God's holy inerrant and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade, but may the word of our God stand forever. Well, author Rankin Wilburn um, tells of this old story about a farmer who had uh, one horse. And one horse, one day his horse ran away and his neighbor came over and said, I'm so, I'm so sorry. You must be so upset to have, to have lost your horse. And the man just said, we'll see. A few days later, the horse returned, followed by 20 wild horses and the man and his son was able, were able to corral them all. And the neighbor said, wow, this is amazing. You must be so happy. And the man said, we will see. A few days later, one of the wild horses kicked the man's only son, breaking both his legs severely and, 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 and making it so that he couldn't walk for a very long, long time and a painful procedure would have to be done. And the neighbor said, I'm so sorry, this is such bad news. You must be so upset about your son. And the man just said, we will see. Soon after the country went to war, 
And every able-bodied man was drafted to fight, and the war was terrible and killed many young men. But the farmer's son was spared because his legs had been broken so badly that it kept him from going off to war. And the neighbor said, look, look at this good luck you have had. You know, this must make you so happy. And of course, the farmer said, we will see. What's up with this guy? Is he just a stoic? Perhaps you could hear that. Uh, he doesn't ever get high and low. Just nothing, just flatlined all the time. Or it could be a man who has learned what Paul has learned, which is contentment. The secret of being content in every circumstance there is, in the highs and the lows. And what Paul is saying is that he has learned to be content in plenty and in want. Now understand the book of Philippians is written by Paul while he is in jail. In fact, he is facing a potential death sentence, and yet this is known as the letter of joy and thanksgiving. And the contentment that this man, Paul, possesses makes him incredibly strong and resilient. And don't you want to have strength like that? Don't we, like, I think all of us, we, we want to be that kind of man, in particular the, the kind of quiet, gentle man, but who can endure everything. The highs and lows, nothing seems to get you overly upset, but you have a joy and a consistency and a strength through it all. I want to be that kind of man. A kind of man who can look at life's most difficult situations and say, we will see. We will see how the Lord will provide. Yes, you acknowledge your emotions but your heart is now bound up by your circumstances, I want to be that kind of man whose undulation of heart is not back and forth because of the circumstances of life. Last week, we looked at this quote and this definition of what is contentment. If you want to turn to the, to the next slide for me, this is from uh, Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan. He said this, contentment is the inward condition of the soul a quiet frame of mind which surrenders to and delights in God's wise disposal in every condition. I love that phrase, a quiet frame of mind. That your soul is quiet. And Paul says, I have really, really good news about contentment. Is you can learn contentment too. He said, I learned it. And so you can learn it too. But with the bad news comes some good news. I mean, with the good news comes some bad news. And what's the bad news? Contentment has to be learned. Contentment has to be learned. You see, last week we talked about the search for contentment, where it can be found. And as is the, the appropriate answer is, it's not found in all the other things in life, in riches or success, and, and building your own family and your own identity and all of these things, but satisfaction and security and contentment is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And that is awesome. That's where the search leads you. And yet, I mentioned it over and over and over again last week, is that chasm between what we know, we know in our head, he is the one who should satisfy our souls. That that's where I can find satisfaction, and yet there is a, a chasm in which we don't experience that satisfaction and we don't have hearts that are contented because while we know that's where we can find it, so often we find ourselves running off to other things. And so, yes, we know where it can be found, but for many of us, we have not yet learned how to use him. We've not yet learned how to be content. We know where we can find it, but we have to learn how to get there day in and day out. And Paul said, and this is a mercy, 
It is a mercy for us that here we have Paul, the great missionary, the powerful Paul, who says, I had to learn it too. I had to learn it too. Which means this is going to take time. And this is where Paul is going to lead us this morning. The passage I read, it leads up to his great proclamation of saying, I've learned to be content in any and every circumstance. He actually gives us actually these principles and these practices that we can carry out that actually will lead you to becoming a person who day in and day out can learn contentment as well. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. First, we're going to look at the practices for learning contentment. The practices for learning contentment. I see really two or three here in Philippians chapter 4 to really through verse 10. First, first practice is this, is the practice of continual prayer. The practice of continual prayer. We see this in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Notice that you are, you're anxious about what? Anything. And in what situations? Every situation. Now that just about covers it, doesn't it? In anything and in everything, you are to go to God in prayer and you're to give him your anxieties and your worries. And I mean it. This is really, really good. You know, some of you have concerns. When you think about prayer, there's that passage about, hey, be, be praying in an unceasing way and you go, how do I pray unceasing? Well, here's what I might say to you. Just acknowledge every time you feel anxious, which for most of us is all the time, and then use that as an opportunity to pray. And guess what? Fairly quickly, you'll become somebody who's praying rather unceasingly. And so you pray whenever you feel frightened or anxious. And some of you actually, what you need to begin to do is to begin to identify your anxiety as for what it is. For many of you men, actually, you know what? Your anger, and this is something I've had to learn, my anger is a manifestation of what I'm afraid of. And you need to trace it back to your anxieties and your fears. You go back, find out what am I afraid of, and give that to the Lord time and time again. And notice the type of prayers that Paul says. He says, ah, let your supplications. What that means is your urgent pleadings, your please, Lord's. You're, oh my goodness, get me out of this, and also your requests. And might I say this, may your requests be specific. This is something I'm consistently having to do in community groups and prayer cells, is say to people, don't pray general, generic prayers. Pray specific prayers. Be very clear. This is not catch-all prayers. Lord, I lay me down to sleep. I pray my soul to, to sleep, to, to keep if I die before I wake, which is a terrifying prayer to pray for one thing, but it's also blasé and overly generic. But teach your children to pray about the specific things that they're afraid of. Lord, I'm afraid of the green monster in the closet. And in naming it and laying it before the Lord, we actually might find that our anxieties are relieved John Calvin, who's known for some very cold thing, but actually, if you were to read him, is a quite the pastoral, has the, quite the pastoral heart. Here's how he put it. He, call, he says, disburden into the bosom of God everything that harasses you. That's 16th century language of saying, cast all your cares upon him. That like a little child who runs in her daddy's arms when she's been hurt and lets forth the wails and the, the, the woundedness and the fears and says, this is what I'm scared of. I'm scared of this. And that's what you get to, the, to do for, before your God. To come up, throw yourself into his bosom, into his chest, and cry out to him. And then notice that we disgorge our requests and our supplications with what? With thanksgiving. 
Thanksgiving, it says in verse six, that we do not anxious about anything, but with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, we let our requests be made known to God because thanksgiving is a death knell to anxiety. Thanksgiving is a lived profession of faith that declares God is good and he has been good and he will be good. It is a declaration also of bringing this God who is up there and acknowledging the fact that he is a God who is living and active here and he is near. He is not just up there in some ethereal way, but he is at work in this world right now and here's the ways I see him doing it. And so it makes your God who is preeminently real, more real than your circumstances by bringing him in. And this is why, as Will called us to do a couple weeks ago, this is why we, we should begin with not just prayer requests, but we should begin with answers to prayer. And when I ask people to do that in groups, you know what, it usually, it's often very, very difficult for people to do that because we are so used to giving voice to our anxieties, but we have not actually begun to work on this discipline of giving thanks. That muscle has become atrophied. We did it when we were little kids because our parents forced us to do it. But as adults, we've become people who've given cries to our anxieties without the discipline of also giving thanks. These things, anxieties and getting that to the Lord and thanksgiving, they go together. This is not pie in the sky where all we ever allow to do before God is giving thanks. Nor is this just that we're a bunch of whiners and complainers who all we ever do is give cries and, and of our anxieties before the Lord, but we are to discipline our prayers so that we have specific thanksgiving and specific cries. And by, by holding these two in prayer, by having them both, we will discipline our giving cries to anxiety in such a way that we don't walk away from prayer more anxious than when we walked in. You see, some of you, you don't find that prayer works as an antidote to your anxiety because the whole time all you ever do is give voice to all that worries you. And you never have spent any time in worship to God, never acknowledge that he's a God who's moving and active in your life. C.S. Lewis has got a great illustration of this in his book, uh, Screwtape Letters. Now, Screwtape Letters is what it is. is Screwtape, who is a older demon, is uh, giving a, a recommendation to a younger demon, Wormwood. Wormwood is the personal demon of this kind of human character, and his human character, Worm, Wormwood's character, has become a believer. And so now Screwtape is trying to help Wormwood just destroy the joy of the human who is his client. And here is how he called him to lead him to pray. Well, you failed, but now you must move on to your mission to make him a wildly unhappy Christian. And he says, here's how to do that. If he's gonna pray for his wife, for example, make sure he prays about all the things that annoy him about her and prays about all the things that drive him crazy so that in praying that his wife changes, he will grow even more bitter at her for all of her idiosyncrasies and quirks. And unfortunately, listen, by the way, I think you should pray about the idiosyncrasies and the quirks of your spouse, especially if they drive you nuts. But you shouldn't only pray about those things. In fact, a lot of you would do really well to pray about those things about your spouse, that the Lord would change them or maybe change you, one or the other, probably both. But then you would also give voice your thanksgiving for them and all that the Lord has given to you in them. And so if you're to pray thanksgiving, then that's gonna require a practice form of thinking. And that's our second practice, which is practice discipline thinking. We might also call this Christian meditation. We see this in verse eight. 
Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is known as the Christian tradition of meditation, training your mind to set your mind on the promises and the things of God. And saying, yes, my circumstances are screaming loudly about this, but I will in the midst of it, I will go quiet and I will focus my time and my attention on all that is good about my God and lovely about this world and lovely about the things that he has given me. Now, if I could actually apply this into the direction of of two personalities, two personalities in this room, and I'm just going to give two, so this is quite the polarities. But if I could speak to two broad personalities, there is those who, in the room, who, let's say your personality lends itself towards pessimism. That's your bent. You find that cynicism an easy road to wander onto, and you have maybe what we would call a choleric sort of disposition. You're easily depressed. You're kind of one of those, you're kind of a, easily kind of like an Eeyore. That's just where you go. So let me for you say that here's the fight for you in this, and perhaps the ever-present fight of your lifetime, is you're going to have to learn to speak back to the evil things, the, the, the truths that evil, evil wants to interpret life around you. That the way in which you're bent is that for evil to easily make it so that you have a pessimistic and a cynical point of view towards life that is bent towards depression and kind of a low view of things. And you're going to have to fight that interpretation and you fight it with the truth of God's word. Whatever is true and whatever is noble and whatever is lovely. And so we have to talk back to the devil's interpretations of our circumstances. My dad used to say to me when I would be playing basketball and I would miss a couple shots and I'd get so angry at myself and I'd throw the ball to the side and I'd just, you know, say something terrible about myself and he would look at me and he'd grab my face and he'd go, son, that's stinking thinking. <laughs> and, and I do the same thing with my children now. That, that thinking stinks. It smells like smoke from the pit of hell. And what you need to feed yourself is things that are positive, not, not, not pie in the sky positivity, but the objective truths that God gives you that are good. Now, if I could speak to the other kind of person who's always busy, you're not thinking negative things. All you ever think is that you're the more optimistic. Everything about your life is good, 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 good. It's great all the time. Your life is busy. It's always getting better. You don't acknowledge the anxieties around you because who has time to acknowledge the anxieties? That's not very efficient. But this person... Their life, they get so busy and they're discontented only by the fact that they don't have more of what they think they should already have in their life. And so they're always striving, always have a bigger vision of the next thing. And to you, might I say that you need to practice this same idea of Christian meditation and to quiet your heart and quiet your mind and spend days of silence before the Lord and get time and hours where you're quiet before him and that you do nothing. And here's the passage that I would call those of you who have this kind of bent to look to. In Psalm 131, David says this, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And I love this image. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. And for some of you, you need to be quieter and you need to rest so that you can actually focus on that, not with that which is vapid and just highly efficient and energetic all the time, but actually 
come to realize the, the, the anxieties that are there. One of the things that I, we had a person on our staff a couple years ago who is very, very, and I love this person. They're still here in this church, and they had great efficiency, and they love to get stuff done, but every time we pray, they would start to cry because they would finally have to quiet themselves before the Lord. And the pace would make them face, look face to face with what was going on. And they, then they could, it was tears of joy because they could finally lay that thing at the Lord's feet. And in this way, through ongoing, continual discipline prayer, you will find that what you'll begin to do is you'll have the third practice, which is this, that you will continually practice the presence of God. Philippians 4, verse 5, he says this, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. In other translations, it simply says this, The Lord is near. There is a well-known book in the Christian mystic tradition by a monk who is known simply as Brother Lawrence. And he has a book um, there that is a kind of collection of his journals and writings entitled Practicing the Presence of God. And what Brother Lawrence displays in this book, Practicing the Presence of God, is all the places and all the ways in which he sought to cultivate in his mind and his heart throughout the day, seeing the Lord at work and speaking to the Lord throughout his days. If you, were to look, if you were to look for modern voices, maybe you don't like the old English. You can usually find Brother Lawrence's work in modern English. But there's some modern voices that speak this way and teach us this as well. Anne Voskamp made a name for herself doing this, writing a book about looking and seeing for all the ways that God was at move and work in the little things of life. But here's what Brother Lawrence says about practicing God's presence. The king full of mercy and goodness embraces me with love, makes me eat at his table, serves me with his own hands, gives me the key of his treasures. He converses and delights himself with me incessantly in a thousand ways, treats me in all respects as his favorite. Now that's a good line. And then I'm changing the language just to paraphrase it from the old English. And he says this, and it is upon this holy presence that from time to time I simply sit and consider. And this is what we need to do in prayer. This is why we have even invocations and we ask God to come and sit with us. And we hear call, we have calls to worship. That's why we begin worship, with calls to worship. Who is calling you? It is the delight that your father is saying, you've been running around all week. Why don't you gather in my presence? Why don't you get quiet for a little bit with me? Why don't you recognize the fact that I am near? And so here's the call. You practice his presence through prayer and meditation and acknowledging that truth that God is near. And you do that over and over and over again. You know that whatever you're going through, whatever you're facing right now, the comfort of God's presence is there for you. Do you know that? That in the midst of the frenetic pace of life and something difficult or some anxiety to stop and pause and go, oh, even here, he is near. The day you do that, your dad died. The Lord is near. The day you lost your job, the Lord is there too. The day you got that diagnosis, he is near. And because the Lord is near, Paul begins the whole section this way. What does he say? Rejoice. And then he says it again. Again I say, Rejoice. It's almost as if Paul knows the objections that we'll have because one of the best ways to talk to God, one of the best ways to meditate in a, on all that is true and noble and lovely is to what? Sing it. 
Listen, thanksgiving and praise, it's kind of an odd song, but guess what? My guess is this, is it's an earworm. Joel, I think, has designed it that way. And it just gets in there. And for the rest of this week, I'm going to get thanksgiving and praise. And you're like, I'm in the shower. Why am I singing this song? Because God is he's rewiring your brain to sing his praises. And that is good. You see, sometimes worship is spontaneous, and that is wonderful. Like when your team scores a last-second touchdown, my team never does that these, these days. Or when your kid cleans his room, I had one of those do that this week, in which you suddenly go, what? Praise to the Lord. That's amazing. That means joy and rejoicing, like just kind of flow out of you. But there's other, lots of other moments in which you have, to, you have to kind of force yourself to do it. In which you wake up and go, you know the last place I want to go today is I, want, I don't want to go to church. And I don't want to sing because I don't feel like singing. And that those are the days in which we most need to come and sing. Because there we experience the Lord's nearness. Now, really quickly, I think Paul has to say rejoice twice because he knows our objections. Oh, Paul, don't tell the hurting, suffering servant to rejoice. That's insensitive. No. But yet, what's Paul's answer? Oh, is that, Paul, that's insensitive to tell someone to rejoice who's in a difficult season. He goes, I say it again, rejoice. Because sometimes there are willful moments where you don't feel like doing it, but you do it anyways. And Paul is saying to us, how could, how could I not say to you that when I realize and recognize that God is near to me and that he has done well for me and he has done cared bountifully to me in Christ Jesus, how can I not say, praise his name? And so we're, we're not coming to someone being insensitive, no. We're not saying, oh, you lost your job, rejoice anyways, flippantly, no. But the scriptures are saying that when you, you go to somebody and they've lost their job or they've had terrible news and you go, you lost your job, and that has to be so scary. And I'm so sorry, but, but know this, you have not lost Christ. You may have lost money and position, but he has not lost you. And I will sit with you in your anxieties and your fears and I will cry with you until our tears give forth to praise. And what you may find is in these disciplines and in these practices, more and more you're a person who is content in a very wide variety of circumstances. Now, if all that sounds a bit too cheery, a bit too disconnected from reality. It's like, so if I practice these things, I'll just be able to do them when I'm impoverished or in the great, most difficult days. That doesn't, that doesn't sound very realistic to me, but understand these are tried and true. So let me bring the second point to bear, which is this. We learn contentment as we practice these practices in real life. In other words, God says, God will force us to put these into play. It's like somebody who, they test a, a play, do a, a play and practice over and over and over and over again, but you don't know it works until you can see it done in a real game. And so Philippians verse, verse 12, chapter four, he says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And what that means is this, is Paul has, has experienced doing these practices in real life scenarios and it has worked in the real game. But he had to learn it. He had to go through some of these things. And what are the two places that Paul has to learn contentment? Contentment is learned first in the low places. 
I've got friends in low places. That's the whiskey. This is that's the wrong song. Paul has been through so much. If you go read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul lives a litany of all the things that he has endured in life. He's been persecuted. He received 40 lashes minus one. He's beaten with rods. He's stoned, shipwrecked three times. Three times? That's a little bit much you think he'd have to say to God. He's on frequent journeys, danger from Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger from the wilderness, danger in the city, danger from false brothers. And then he says, oh, yeah, and every day I'm stressed out about the church. And then he says, I'm well acquainted with low places, brothers and sisters, and yet the peace you crave and the joy you see comes only as you, I have passed through these seasons and I have found that Jesus is enough. People ask, must we go through great hardship to experience abiding contentment? Is that really necessary? And I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to say that yes, it probably is. Now, behind that question, though, we kind of locks, lurks something, that belief that we can actually control the timing of when we will learn this. But the fact remains that, yes, yes, you, you will probably have to endure some, some suffering to experience abiding contentment. Why is contentment learned in the low places? What is it about our hearts that that's the place where God has to send us for us to learn this? Because there's all sorts of things that we cling to because we think that they are critical and they are necessary for us to be content. I've gotta have X, Y, and Z to be content. And if I don't have X, Y, and Z, then I am not content. And the way we most often relinquish our hold on those things and when, is when God, and we realize that we don't have to have those things to be content is when God goes, okay, I'm gonna pluck that out of your death grip. And we come through it and we cry about it. And then we realize we've survived and that he has been enough. This is why I actually, I think that the, the picture there of a weaned child is actually really interesting. What's a weaned child go through? They think, what do I need for life to feel safe and to feel satisfied? I want mom and I want milk. That's it. I don't care what else you give me. I want those two things. And what is weaning doing? It is teaching a child, you cannot always have mom and you cannot always have milk. And so what do they do? They cry through the night, like we do. And they go through darkness and difficulty and they wake up in the morning and they're still alive. And you further, you further extend out that weaning process to the point where they don't, they don't have to have mom all the time. And they don't have to have milk all the time. And then what comes into their life? Steak. <laughs> and so it's a good thing. And that's what God does for us. In which he goes, I am the steak that you long for. And so I'm gonna take some things that you hold on to so dearly to teach you that I am what you really need. What you thought you needed, you don't actually have to have. God is training you, training you in that way. It's only, it's almost always only through suffering that our hands are finally relinquished of those things. You didn't realize that, you, that God was what you truly needed until God took away those things that you leaned to on more than him. And so Paul says, after this litany of saying, all these low places that he's been, he said this in chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians. Three times, so he talks about this thorn in the flesh, three times I plead with the Lord to remove it. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, he says, I will boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content. With what? With weaknesses and insults, hardships and persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So contentment is learned in the low places 
But he also says it's learned in the high places. It's learned in abundance. And how do we, how do we learn contentment there? Well, how do we learn it there? It's the opposite. It's when you get what you think you most need. And what do you realize about that thing that you thought you most needed? You're still not content. I think of uh, Bill Walsh in his autobiography. He talks about um, the longing and the striving to win and how he loved getting there, to getting that place of perfection as a coach, that he, he, he got his team to the Super Bowl and they win the Super Bowl. And then he said what happened is he stopped really caring about winning and all he was was the wins really weren't enjoyable to him. All he felt from then on was the pain of losing. He, he reached the mountaintop and then the, everything kind of went away. And so it is with us. You get promoted because you think I have to have that position in order to be content or I get that money or I get that prosperity or I get that success or I get my kids in the house or I get my kids out of the house. I get these things that I think I so desperately want and I run, 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 run and I find that they don't make me content. It's like going to the gym. You see two people at the gym. One's on a treadmill and he's walking three miles per hour and the other person next to him is sweating and sprinting now listen, one guy's working way harder than the other guy, but they're staying in the same place. And so it is with our, our, our sprinting, trying to, find trying to find contentment in this world. In other words, you learn contentment in places of plenty because you learn the places of, of plenty won't satisfy you in and of themselves. And that leads us to the crescendo declaration that Paul says. And so he says, because I have walked to the places, the low places, and I've been in the high places, and I've found that God is who I need in both of those places, and he is the one who satisfies, he says what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And this is your third point. The power from learning contentment. This is found in verse 13. I can do all things through him who gives me strength, who strengthens me. Now this, this is a beloved verse, is it not? And yet it's one of those verses in which kind of like, you kind of want to go, I don't think you know that says what you think it means. Um, because oddly enough, we tend to take it, we, we see it on the, uh, the, the blackout, under the eye black under football players. You know, it's like, you think of Tim Tebow, Philippians 4.13 right here on his eye black and he's all bloodied and sweaty and gross and he's running through a wall of defenders and he's showing his grit and his strength. That's what we think of when actually the passage is saying exactly the opposite of the way we use it. The verse is saying absolutely the opposite. The spirit of it is not, you got this, but the spirit of it is, you don't got this. But he does. He does got this. You're saying... I in verse 13, you're saying, I can't, but Christ can. I am unable, but he is able. And this is key to learning contentment in the low and the high places. For each, at each point, we see the, what is, I would call this principle of spiritual power, the law of spiritual power. If you want to be strong, like Paul says he's strong, that endures the low and the high places, that can endure whatever life throws at you and you can be one who is content and has joy. Well, God's strength is available to you and operative in you to the measure that you feel your need of it. And that is the principle of spiritual power. That God's strength is available to you and operative in you to the measure that you feel your need of it, or maybe positively, to the measure that you long for his power. 
It's in realizing in your places of weakness and dependence and surrender that reliance cannot be on self, but it has to be on God that you actually find yourself strong. This is your hiding place and his name is Jesus. And I know an awful lot of Christians who spend a ton of energy, a ton of energy just trying to get out of the places of need. Their whole life is built around this. I never wanna feel need. I never want to be needy in my finances, with my kids, with my life. And so I control everything in my life because I don't want to feel needy. But this is precisely where you learn to be content. Because no gain could add to it, no loss could take away from you what you already need to be content, and that is Christ himself. And if you have Jesus, you have everything that you need to have a life free of worry, shame, and guilt, instead a life full of joy. You see, some of you are discontent like I am with yourself. I'm not getting discontent with you. I'm discontent with me. How can I be content with my life when my life is stained with sin and my sanctification process is so slow and I do X, Y, and Z still and I can't understand it? Ah, well, I can be content and I can rest quietly because God has covered my guilt and he has taken my shame and he is unchangingly faithful in the midst of my faithlessness. So if you have Jesus, you have everything that you need. And what is it that he can do? He says, I can do all things. What's, what is it he can do? He can have peace. God makes me able to face abundance or face deprivation. Do you see that contentment is incredibly powerful? It's a superpower. And that is known as the peace of God. And how do you know, how do you know that if you have God, that he'll never be taken away from you? How do you know that? Well, we have the peace of God because we have peace with God. We have the peace of God in his presence because we have peace with God. You, the story of the Bible is that there is no peace in our life and the reason why I have to look at all sorts of other things and we feel perpetually insecure and dissatisfied is because we've looked at all these things because we've been separate from God. And the one place, the one place you actually feel contentment is feeling his closeness to you. And yet our sin has robbed us of that closeness. And yet what is the gospel? The gospel is this, it says it in Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no more enmity between you and God. And therefore, there is nothing that's going to remove his presence from you. And so the great anecdote to your anxiety and the great gift to you of contentment is found in knowing that you have peace with God and therefore no one's ever gonna take his presence from you. And only as you experience peace with God will we experience the peace of God. Until you throw yourself at the mercy of God, will you never know this peace? Until you know that his wrath is not for you anymore. Until you know that the suffering that you experience is not his anger lashing out against you. But in these things, these are his gifts to make you experience him all the more deeply. The person who knows that they have the Lord, that Christ is in them and that Christ is with them and that Christ is for them, they can face whatever, whatever may come. When you say, ah, everything has been taken from me, but the one thing that I need. For God is my chosen portion and my cup. And whoever has God lacks nothing. That will make you a profoundly powerful person in this world. One who is content in any and every circumstance.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be a people who don't resist the road to contentment. That, Lord, we would be a people who actually begin to delight in your disciplines and the disciplines and the practices that you give us. That we would become a people who pray constantly as the primary antidote to our anxieties and our fears. I pray that we would be a people who discipline our minds and our hearts that when we find that stinking thinking is crowding in, that our busyness is crowding out, that, Lord, we would get quiet before you, that you would teach us to meditate. And, Lord, I, I just, I, and Thanksgiving, Lord, I thank you that as we even said it in our litany earlier, Lord, I praise you that we get to come into this place week in and week out by Joel and others. And we get to, to think upon that which is lovely and that which is noble and that which is good, which is the glory of Jesus Christ, the face of our God who's been given to us. So make yourself real to us and teach our hearts to say it is well. Even here it is well, for even here I have my God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing.